We are a staff that loves to smile indeed, so Carla's got, always got a smile on her face. Even through the most stressful times, you'll never see Carla without a smile on her face. Isn't that right, Richard? Yes? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Good answer. All right. Well, good morning, y'all, here and online. How y'all doing today? Good. Okay, you'll have to excuse me a little bit. I just returned to Hong Kong after spending some time in Texas with my wife's family. So if I start throwing out words like y'all and fixin' to and howdy, you know, I'm not having a stroke, I'm not having an identity crisis, just readjusting to Hong Kong, okay? Any Texans in the house today, by the way? Anyone from Texas? No. All right, all right, all right. Okay, just me, okay. Well, uh, our son, Isaiah... I just had to Isaiah. That is his name, yes. Isaiah is turning two in a few weeks. And watching him grow has been the most lovely yet frustrating journey we've been on together as a family so far. Of course, there are many challenges. And one of the challenges we're facing this time is teaching him impulse control, which at the moment seems pretty, um, you know, it doesn't exist for him, basically. He just does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. This might be screaming at the top of his lungs for no reason. This might be, you know, throwing food across the table. This might be licking things that he shouldn't be licking, like the MTR pole that everybody has their hands on, okay? I'm told, this is, the internet tells me, so it must be true, right? This is a very common stage for toddlers to go through. In fact, there's a very famous social experiment that highlights um, this thing about um, children and impulse control. It's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Some of you might be familiar with it. You might have seen the YouTube video on it. Basically, what happens is uh, there's a small child in a room, and an adult walks in and gives this child a marshmallow. And he's, he or she is told, hey, here's one marshmallow. If you wait till I come back, I'll, you know, don't eat it. If you wait till I come back and the marshmallow's still here, I'm going to bring you another one. So you'll have two. And so the adult leaves the room and they wait, and the camera's on the child, and you just see this child go through the next, you know, two minutes, the most excruciating time of their lives, right? They're sitting there staring at the marshmallow, you know, they're like prodding it, um, sniffing it, you know, trying to lick it, and some of them pinch a little bit off, you know, the temptation to eat it is just so much. And of course, some children just don't care, the temptation's too much, you just pick it up, oh, eat it, and say, like, I'm not even sorry about that, you know? So, impulse control, resisting temptation. Now, this might sound fun to us, but in our own walk, in our own lives, we too go through our own versions of battles with temptation. And I'm sure every one of us in this room knows what it feels like to really, really, really want to do the things, but we know they violate how God has called us to live. We can define temptation this way. Temptation can be defined as the inclination to sin. The pull to do and think and act in ways that we know we're not supposed to. And these things can be very seductive. They're seductive because on the surface, they seem to enhance our lives. They seem to make life better or easier or more free. But in the end, what we find is that when we give in to temptation, what it actually does is diminish and maybe even tear down or destroy the genuine life that God has called us to live, the life that God truly has for us. Okay, don't switch off. It might start to get a little uncomfortable, but stay with me. 
we all know what we're talking about, right? That website that's just one click away. The pull to objectify another person in a purely physical, sexual way. The swipe of that credit card that you just, well, that thing you just need so much, but you already don't know how you're going to pay the bill from the next month. That really snarky comment that you know if you say it, it's just cut the person right down to it, put them in their place. That angry outburst you just unleash on your child without thinking about it. You're out on the night. Just one more drink. Just one more drink. The easy would be to just to take that little bit extra. No one's ever going to know. If I take this, no one's ever going to know. So, you know, it's fine, right? Or that relationship you keep going back to, which you know is so toxic, and you, but for some reason you just feel like you have to keep going back there. Hashtag my life, am I right? Now, of course, for some of these things, the consequence of giving into temptation might not be so serious. Like licking empty your handrails, yeah, it's a bit gross, you might get a bit sick, you might end up on YouTube even, but in the long run, it's okay. Screaming in a restaurant for no reason, it's a bit embarrassing, but people will get over it. Eating a lot of marshmallows, well, technically, I don't think that's even really wrong in the first place. But for some things, like the things we have just listed above, the consequence of not getting a handle can be pretty serious, are pretty serious. And so today, as we continue in the book of James, we come to a past couple of passages that teach us how to stay strong in temptation. And I'm not joking when I say our lives might literally depend on how we handle these things in our lives. So you're still paying attention? Okay, good. Let's get into it then. James 1, 13. Follow me if you can, please. Scripture says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You know, there's a funny thing that happens in languages where sometimes words can sound the same but have completely different meanings. Right? This happens in Cantonese. You know, you have um, something called tongyamti, right? Which um, they sound the same, but the meaning is completely different. So, for example, mohei. Uh, Right? In Cantonese, there's a phrase called mohei. Mohei can mean I'm out of breath, I'm tired, I need to take a break. Or mohei can also mean a weapon that you use to fight or attack someone with, right? Sounds to say different meaning. In English, we have these words too, right? They are called homonyms. Is that right, English teachers? Right, homonyms. Sound the same, completely different meaning. For example, the word bark, okay? Bark can be the sound a dog makes when it's excited or trying to get your attention. Or it can be like the outer layer of a tree, right? Same sound, different meaning. Rock, for example, right, can be chunks of granite or stone that you see lying around on the ground. Or it could be a Hollywood movie superstar. Same word, different meaning. Now, I'm telling you this because there is a homonym happening here in this passage in the Greek. The word is perisamos. And it's a word that can mean both trials and temptations. 
Now, last week, Carla, Pastor Carla talked to us about trials, right? About how trials can be something that we learn to take joy in, can even be seen as a gift from God. Why is that? Well, because trials can be used to refine us, shape us, build us up so we can be, in the word of James himself, lacking in nothing. Trials can be a good thing if we embrace them in the way that we're supposed to. In fact, Scripture reassures us that time and time again, God can and use trials in our lives to make us into, to be more like Jesus, for our own good, for the good of the community, and for the glorification of his name. And yes, they are tough and challenging to get through, but trials are a journey well worth taking. However, temptation is very different. Because temptation does not seek to glorify God or to build up his name. But temptation seeks to tear us down, to destroy us, to shame us, and ultimately to lead us into death. The point we need to understand is this. Where trials and tests may come from God, the temptation to sin will never come from God. God never entices us to sin against him. It's not in his nature, it's not in his personality, it's just not the way he works. I say this is important for us to understand because in order for us to get a handle of temptation, we need to know God's character. Because often what I find for myself at least is this, when I fall into temptation, I start to blame God for the place that I put myself in. In fact, if we look to the very beginning of time, when we see how sin enters into this world, we see Adam and Eve blaming God. Adam and Eve are tempted to eat the tree from the only, um, the only tree that God told them, do not eat fruit from this tree. It's off limits, and they take fruit from that tree. And when God comes to the Garden of Eden and he confronts Adam about it, notice react his reaction. Adam says this, well, it's the woman you put with me. She gave me some of the fruit, and that's why I ate it. And then God asks Eve what happened. And Eve defects blame, and she says, well, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate the fruit. In other words, what Adam and Eve are saying, you know what, God, it's not our fault. This is on you, God. It's your fault. If it wasn't for this woman, if it wasn't for this serpent, we would never be in the place that we are now. Like I said, how about in your own life? Do we ever find ourselves blaming God for our own mistakes? Remember what we just said. God will never entice us to sin because God can have nothing to do with evil. Let's go back to verse 13 for a minute, okay? Um, I think if we look at the verse this way, it's gonna highlight it quite well. We're gonna read it again, but this time, notice the homonym, okay? It's been phrased in a slightly different way with this homonym in mind. Verse uh, 13 reads like this. When tested, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So I'll say it again, just to drive it home. God does not tempt anyone to sin. He is only good all the time. And for that reason, we can put our trust fully in him. One more point before we carry on, okay? 
When I'm talking about temptation here, um, we have to understand that temptation itself is not sin. It's the giving into temptation, crossing that line, that's when it becomes sin. Right? After all, Scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in every single way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. So the question then becomes this. Well, where does the temptation to sin come from? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So there's a small list here that tells us the sources of temptation. First, it says this, our own evil desire. Again, this is one of these uncomfortable truths that we have to embrace. And the fact is, all of us in this room, all of you guys watching online, all of us, no matter who you are, are capable of doing evil. And in this passage, James is trying to remind us that there is a sense of responsibility we have to take. He's really trying to stress that here. When we make a mess of things, when we mess things up, when we fall into sin through temptation, we have to own up to it. That's on us. Now, of course, this isn't saying that we only do evil all the time. Right? Later in the letter, James is encouraging the readers and the hearers to, you know, Pair the faith and the works together in order to do good things, to glorify God's name, to reach the community, to help other people, like widows and the orphans. But this is a reminder to us that as human beings, which I'm sure most of us in this room are, evil is a reality that sits within all of us. Now you might be thinking again, evil, really? That's kind of a harsh word to use, isn't it? I mean, I know I do bad things, but is it really evil? Again, let's expand our thinking a little bit. Because the way evil is being used here isn't to, you know, isn't like maybe in our imagination or the really evil things that come up to our mind. But evil is used to describe anything that falls short of God's standard. Our selfish desires, our greed, our lust dishonesty, fits of rage and anger, neglecting the poor and the needy. All of us in this room are capable of evil acts, both big and small. And when we fall into those places, we have to take responsibility of our own sin. So there is our own evil desires. However, there are also temptations that come to us from other sources. This is what James is talking about when it says we are dragged away and enticed. And the fact is, we have a very evil enemy, a very real enemy, Satan and his minions and his, all the other you know, um, devils that work for him who will do whatever they can to entice you to give in to your own temptation. And there are also people with bad intentions, people who don't necessarily have you know, your best um, for you. These are people that might try to use you, try to abuse you, different ways to try and trick and manipulate you into doing things you know aren't right. And when James uses the words dragged away and enticed, right, the original hearers and the original readers of this letter would have immediately come up with images of things like traps and hooks that were used for like fishing and hunting to hunt and catch animals. So maybe as a bit of reflection, we can ask it like this. Do you ever find yourselves being preyed upon by evil? 
I mean, you're out there trying to live your best life for Jesus. But it seems like these temptations, these things just keep trying to trip you up. Things trying to hunt you down and, and put evil thoughts and desires into your mind. For example, maybe just an example, right? You, you've just really had a wonderful time with God with your small group. Maybe you went out to do some outreach, and it was amazing. You sat down with a stranger, and you shared your life with them, and it was just a really good time of worshiping God together, seeing him at work in the life of your small group and your community. People were deeply impacted by God this evening, and it was great. But now you come home, and it's quiet. Maybe you're alone. Maybe the family's already asleep. And suddenly, it's as if, you know, these things just start happening in your brain. All these hooks, all these temptations. Turn on the computer. Do this. Do that. Check it out. Nobody's going to know. You had a tough night. You had a tiring day. You need to relax. Now, of course, the context might be slightly different from everyone here. But I think with a little bit of self-reflection and honesty, we know how this works in our own lives. Right, we get those urges, we get, we, we get hooked, we get trapped. And even though we know we're not supposed to go there, suddenly we find ourselves right back in the middle of the mess we swore we left behind that last time. It's like what Paul says in his letter to the Romans, Romans 7, 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do not, uh, sorry, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Well, how do we respond when things like this happen to us? When we go through this roller coaster, what's the right response? Well, one of the dangers is for us to play down the seriousness of sin and temptation. You know, the concept of Temptation, especially, it's something often gets trivialized, right? In media, in the things we see around us, it gets trivialized. We make it into this thing where it seems kind of fun. Oh, we can float around with temptation a little bit. It's okay. It's fun and exciting. Let's see how far I can go, how far I can get away with this. And we begin telling ourselves a lie. We begin telling ourselves things like, it's not so bad. Because it's not really hurting anybody, so why not go there? church. This is a lie. And in fact, James gives us a pretty graphic picture of what happens when we follow that path, when we give into temptation and let sin run our lives. Listen carefully. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I mean, it sounds like something out of a horror movie, right? At least in my imagination, this is the kind of picture that comes up. But the reason why James is using such vivid and graphic language is that he's trying to highlight that temptation is not something that we can just mess around with. As we mentioned earlier, the consequences of giving in to temptation is a very serious thing. And when we allow temptation to grow and develop, it tells us it turns into sin and sin leads to one place only, and that is death. The word used here by James is conceived, and he uses it to evoke the picture of pregnancy. But James uses it somewhat ironically because 
in, in a normal, healthy conception and birth, right, in a normal, healthy circumstance, birth leads to joy and new life. I mean, I will never know how hard it is for a woman to carry a child in the womb for uh, nine months. That whole journey is tiring, it's tough. Um, but what I do know is that at the end of that, there is great joy in celebrating new life. But in this case, there is nothing good that comes from giving birth. Because in this case, we are giving birth to sin. And as it says in Scripture, sin, when it is full grown, gives birth or leads to death. Again, listen, church. It's important to remember, because like we said, there are times when we feel like we, feel like we can just walk in temptation and get away with it. It doesn't hurt anyone, we're thinking. It's not going to be a big deal. Or we try and justify it by saying things like, you know, if you, if you only knew the stress that I'm facing, if you only knew the pressures that I'm up against, you would understand why I have to turn to these things. But the path is clear. When we succumb to our temptations, it leads to sin. And sin, when it grows up, Romans 6.23 says it in a different way. Same, same message, though. The wages of the consequence of sin is death. So put it in a very simple diagram. It might look a bit like this. Temptation leads to our own evil desires. We fall into sin, which leads to death. Now, when we focus on the word death, again, it seems kind of harsh. I mean, it's like one of these Bible verses, right, that Christians use to bash other people, to, to scare people to believing in Jesus. And besides, it's not even true, is it? Because I know a lot of people who don't seem to worry about sin or temptation. They just do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it. And life seems to be fine for them. They don't seem to be dying. In fact, it seems like they're having a great time with life. So it's important, again, to understand what James means when he uses the word death. It's not so much a literal physical death, although I think we can all imagine scenarios where giving into temptation will literally lead you to an actual physical death. But I think the bigger meaning, if we expand the definition a little bit, death, what James is talking about, is a life separated from God's truth. Death is a life separated from the fullness that Jesus promises his believers. Which is why he reminds us, verse 16, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Do not be deceived. Because yes, on the surface, it might seem as though people living that way, it's good, it's fine. It might appear as though those who live without any worry about sin and temptation have it all figured out. They do whatever they want to do, follow their own desires. That's the way to live your life. Again, just being honest in a moment of reflection here. I've often thought this to myself. I wonder if you have too. Sometimes I feel like life would be so much easier if I wasn't a Christian. I think for me, this is one of the biggest temptations. I see how people live. And I see when people don't seem to care about you know, resisting temptation or doing the wrong thing. It looks really good. It's very tempting for me. They just do whatever they want, whenever they want, and it always looks fun. And I sometimes find myself looking with envy and jealousy 
I begin to ask God questions like, come on, Jesus. How come I had to be called into ministry? Why do I have to care so much about what you think and feel and say? Why can't I just do whatever I want to do? How about you? Where have you been deceived? Where have you ever felt like giving into temptation is better than a life with Jesus? Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. Temptation and sin lead to one place only, and that is death. Because all these enticing things we see before us right now, one day, they're not going to exist anymore. It's like flowers that fade. It's like a vapor in the wind. One day, these things will not exist. And in the end, that only thing that will remain is the truth of God's word and his love for us. And so therefore, when we live outside of that truth and that love, that is death. And yes, it might not literally kill you right there on the spot, but it does mean that you will be living a life less than the genuine, full version of God, of who God created you to be. Remember what Jesus said in John 10.10. The thief, the enemy, sin comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they, that y'all, might have life and have it to the full. So what do we do? Is there something to help us out this road of self-destruction? Well, good news is yes. Because remember what we said earlier? It's not in God's nature for him to entice us to sin. It's not in his nature to lead us into temptation. God will never ask you to sin. But rather, this is what God does do for us. Verse 17, James 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the heaven of the um, for the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. So this is the truth. Then, the God we serve is good, and He is perfect. Everything that comes from God is good and perfect. And when sin and temptation shifts and changes and hides in the dark, God is light. And God is unchanging, which means God is trustworthy. But notice something really cool here, Will. This is some of the coolest parts that I notice. Remember just now when James was talking about uh, how sin leads to temptation, uh, which leads to gives birth to death. He was using that birth analogy. Well, James picks up on that here once again. But this time, the path is quite different. Whereas evil desires ending up giving birth to sin and death, God gives us birth through the word of truth. And that leads to us becoming the first fruits of all he created. So if we were to put this into a diagram, it looks like this. God gives us truth, gives birth to truth which makes us into the first fruits of God's creation. Now, if you remember back to the Old Testament, the first fruits are the first and best part of every single harvest. Right? In the Old Testament times, God's law commanded that we all gather up the first fruits and present them to God. They are holy. They belong to God. In other words, what James is trying to tell us here is that all of us in this room 
Yes, we are capable of sin and evil, but you are also the best of God's creation. We belong to God. Every single person in this room is a unique, sacred possession of God. And you weren't meant to live a life that's constantly wracked by sin and temptation, but you were born, you were created to live a life of truth and flourishing. You were made to represent the best of who God is, the best of God's love. That's who you are. That is your identity. So how do we live there instead? How do we move from a life of sin and temptation into that place? Okay, now I know this sermon so far sounded a little bit scoldy, right? It sounded a bit like, you're just a bunch of sinners. We all are sinners. Everyone needs to stop being tempted. Stop sinning. Behave yourselves. Pull yourself up by your bootstrap, Hayden, and you're going to be okay, all right? And you're sitting here like, Dude, I brought a friend with me today. Okay, this is, we don't need this right now. Stay with me, please, okay? Ultimately, this is not a message about making you feel to feel bad and act right. Because the answer is, right, the answer to escaping sin is not to just modify your behavior, to do better, to try harder. The way, there is a way out of temptation, but it's not by gritting your teeth and trying to live life better. Rather, it comes from a loving, true relationship with God. When we go to chapter 4 in James, it tells us this. This is how we do it. This is the way out. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, Purify your heart, you you double-minded. So for those of us listening right now, you're feeling like you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. You're feeling like, yes, I know. I don't want to do these things anymore. I just don't know how to stop. Those of us who are feeling a bit hopeless because you've tried and tried and tried, but things never seem to get better, at least not for the long run. It's a bit of success right back to square one again. Here's the good news. There is a way out. There is a way out, and it all comes from a relationship with the God who sees you not as a sinner, not as death, but he sees you as his first fruits. It's in a relationship with the God who wants to give you good and perfect gifts. And this is what he calls us to do. These are some very real and practical steps that we can take in order to live the life that God has called us to live. The first step is this. We submit to God. Now, I know, again, the word submit often has some very negative connotations to it because when we abuse people who are in submission to us, who are under our authority, that can lead to some really bad things, to abuse, to hurt, to pain, But remember what we said just now. God is trustworthy. He is the giver of only good things. So when we choose to submit to God, we don't have to fear because God is good. And for those of you who are like, you know what? I don't like to submit to anybody. I run my own life. Well, the truth is everybody submits to something. When you live your own life, when you go that path, you're submitting to sin and temptation. You're still in submission, 
It might not feel like it at that time. So the point is this. We have to make a choice. We either choose to submit to God, who gives us life, or we submit to sin that leads us into death. The second thing we do is this. It tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now I know, when we talk about the devil and the enemy, it sounds evil and scary. And the devil might appear to be powerful and able to do a lot of things, but in reality, the devil is a coward. He is a coward. And when he's resisted with the prayer that claims the victory of Jesus on the cross, he knows he's beaten. He knows he's been defeated. Now his tactic, the enemy's tactic, will always be try to trick you, to scare you, to whisper lies at your ear, to tell you that, you know what? Don't bother. We've been here before. We, know, we all know how this ends. You won't be able to resist. So let's just come with me straight away. Why are you bothering with all this Jesus stuff? Church, listen to me when I say this. That is the lie. That is the lie from the pits of hell. You can resist the devil. And when you resist the devil, he will run. Remind yourself that ultimately the enemy has already been defeated because of what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection from death to life. Satan's power in this life might be very real, but it's also very limited. His kingdom will not last forever, but God's kingdom will. So fear not. Stand firm, resist the devil, and he will run. He will flee from you. And the best place we find the strength and the protection to stand firm is to do this. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. This is a promise. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Now again, honestly speaking, for me, this is the hardest thing to believe. Because as a young boy growing up, I was always terrified of admitting I was wrong, especially with my parents. Now we've done a lot of work in this, especially in the past few months. Me and my mom have had some really good conversation in this area. But honestly, growing up, Anytime I would make a mistake, I would be so afraid to tell my mom what had happened because I was fearful of the punishment that might await me on the other side. Terrified. This also happened in school. You know, one of the things that I hated most in school, I grew up in a British boarding school, and every now and then, almost every day even, my housemaster would pull me into his office and say, hey, Ellison, tell me what you've done wrong. I hated that question because... On any given day, I'd done multiple things wrong. And so I was, you know, I would be afraid. If I told him something he didn't already know, I'd be in more trouble than I already was. So, oh, yeah, sorry, sir, I missed physics today. You missed physics? I'm talking about that history homework you didn't hand in for the past three weeks already. What's going on? But maybe you can relate. You know, many times in life when we make a mess of things, the natural in inclination is to hide the natural inclination is to pull back, to cover ourselves up. And we can easily start to do this with God. We fall into temptation, we sin, and we begin, we begin to think of ourselves as unworthy. We begin to think 
God doesn't want anything to do with us anymore. We begin to think he's going to punish us, to keep his distance from us, maybe even reject us. James reminds us here that any time we go close to God, any time we draw near to God, no matter in what situation we're in, his response will never be to stay away or to put further distance between you and him. Remember the story of how Jesus um, encounters lepers when he sees lepers? Everyone else would run away from lepers in Jesus' time, but he was the one who moved towards the unclean. Remember the story of the prodigal son? How the prodigal son, the younger son, ran away, but as he comes back, the father is there, waiting, running to the son, not to punish, not to scold, but to love, to embrace, to celebrate. And God feels the same way about you. This is a promise. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've messed up, if we decide to submit, to go close to God, his response is always to come nearer to you. It's really that simple. When we approach God, he will never, ever, ever reject us. So, how do we respond then? God is ready and he's waiting. We need to do some self-reflection here. So I wonder if you just take a time, forget about people around you for a second, okay? Some of the things that we're wrestling with in this room right now might be really big things. I understand that. There might not be enough space and time in this moment right now to truly get to the depths of those. There might be a long journey ahead of you, is what I'm saying. It might require a lot of prayer, a lot of support from your community, maybe even some professional therapy. There might be a long road. It's a big mess. But the encouragement here is this. We have to start somewhere. So maybe we can start right here, right now. So you might want to close your eyes right now and just listen to what God has to say to you. And perhaps right in this moment, you have to make a decision about how you're going to live your life. Who are you going to choose to submit to? When we go back and forth, James in this passage calls it double-mindedness. We can't make our minds up. We can't seem to make our minds up. Who do we want to live for? Who do I want to follow? So maybe what you need to do right now is as simple as this. It's just to make your mind up once again. Not everything is going to become perfect immediately, but that's okay. It's a journey. But what we can do is take that first step towards God. And as you do that, be reassured, church. My brother, my sister, all that awaits you is love, is mercy, it's grace and forgiveness. 
And in this process, James also encouraged us to do this. He says, to purify our hearts. Because remember, this isn't just about behavior modification. Purifying your heart means that you're willing to change from the inside out. You're willing to truly confess and repent and to make a real change in the way you've been living your life and who you've been living for. But be confident also that you don't have to do this in your own power. But we have a Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that leads us and guides us. Jesus has already done the work of paying the debt of sin so we can live pure and holy lives. And maybe your prayer this morning is to ask for God to give you a heart that's in tune with His. And as we do this, church, this is how we submit to God. This is how we draw close to God. And the enemy flees because he has no power in God's presence. And you shake off the chains of temptation and sin in order to, in order to embrace the freedom and the fullness which God has given you to live. You are his first fruits, church. You are made to reflect God's love, God's goodness to kindness so that everyone around you might know the goodness, the kindness, and the love of God. So my prayer for us is this, that we may live every day drawing nearer and nearer to the God who loves us. So Father, I thank you for every person in this room right now. And all of us, all, all those who are joining online. Father, I, know, I thank you that no matter what state we're in, when we come near to you, you embrace us. You reassure us. You love us. No matter how broken we are. Isaiah 42, 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. As long as there's breath in our lungs, Lord, we can come to you and you draw near to us. So Father, with these things we're wrestling with, with sin and temptation and, and evil that tries to drag us down and entice us and entangle us, I pray for freedom from these things. I pray that you would give us strong hearts and strong minds, not empowered by our own will, but motivated by your love, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We would know what the fullness of life is when we walk in step in freedom with you. So Jesus, we love you. Walk with us in this journey. Help us up when we fall. Help us to encourage each other in this. And may we truly be a community, be a people that lives as your first fruits, the best, the best of who you created us to be. We thank you for this in your beautiful name. Amen.